Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, there was a new visual tease from Chris McCord that was posted to Twitter. So the only text with this little post was soon TM, just implying that this thing would be revealed soon. So maybe it'll be released and further announced by the time you hear this. So we don't know yet, but what the graphic looks like, we have a link to this in the show notes so you can check it out for yourself, but it looks like a logo of a flame that's kind of reminiscent of the Firefox logo, but without the fox. And it's very colorful. It looks cool. There's nothing else to go on. Certainly we'll want to share more when we know. Do you guys have any think guesses or ideas of what it could be? There's a sheen on the top of it, like a little a little reflective part. So it looks a, a bit metallic. Jose also retweeted it and said flame on. <laughs> yep. So fire. Okay. Well, I mean, that's essentially the logo, but also flame on is the name of the telemetry library. It's a live dashboard thing about showing traces. So I don't know if he's trying to mislead me. He's a trickster like that, but <laughs> I know that this theme lately of Phoenix Live View, new features and stuff has been about developer experience so i wonder if tracing has something to, to do with that yeah. flame graphs yeah oh yeah flame graphs there you go like hey there it is there it is right there <laughs> we fit we cracked the code you guys obviously <laughs> didn't read the replies in here because somebody says is this something to do with flame graphs and he says nope another idea that i saw posted on the twitter thread was well is this like an ai model that will generate logos it's like no i don't think that's it either <laughs> no but i did use one of those <laughs> He's, he said it very much improves developer experience, and it's not Live View related. Hmm. Oh, man. It's not Live View 1.0. It's not Live View related, but it does improve developer experience. It's not a Phoenix like toolbar. It's not a AI assistant extension. <laughs> Coming from Chris, it's probably Phoenix related. So we'll have to wait and see, I guess. <laughs> you know what? I think whatever the feature is called, it's it's like literally going to be called soon. <laughs> he's going to he's going to troll us all with with that. All right. Well, moving on. So a prominent member of the Beam community, Howlith, has released part two in his blog series titled Who Watches the Watchmen? Part one was released quite a bit ago. But if you remember the series or the first part, Howlith is is very much uh, knowledgeable about uh, Linux and how to get things running and system d and stuff like that and what part one is essentially about that and so part two is in the similar vein about how system d watches you know your your service your your elixir and erlang service and then in turn has the, its own otp supervision tree right so who watches the watchman there you go i spoiled the title for you but <laughs> this particular post is about securing it a bit more particularly around sockets I won't go into all the details that he does, but the the short version of it is if you're going to start your Elixir web server, you probably need some ports you know, open to it. I think by default, all the ports are open to it. So systemd, you, you can specify specific ports to be open to it or file description, but Unix ports doesn't even have to be web ports, right? Lots of networking stuff could could complicate things. <laughs> um, and so he just has some very nice guides uh, and, and advice on how to lock that up and make it work. So very nice. Go check out that blog post and subscribe to his post, really. He always has very nice, formative info to share. 
I thought it was cool how he'd have like Elixir code and then system D config code, you know, just talking about how these are related and what we need to do to do our system D config code. Cause I've, I've never actually written a system D service. Oh yeah. And just the idea of being able to do, you know, system D start or status on your Phoenix app or Elixir app doesn't have to be Phoenix, right? It's like, that's cool. Yeah. It's like that whole defense in depth too. It's like, yeah, the beam will keep going and restarting services and processes within the beam. But then if the whole beam crashes, which can happen for different reasons, you know, just cascades up failures do if they're not handled, then you may need something to restart the whole service. And that's what system D can do. Yeah. This, this whole like it, the platform and infrastructure kind of stuff is just like, you can't keep it all in your head. And, and there's so, so many services out there that are like abstracting these things away. You know, we've talked about it before, I think, where there's a real fear out there for some developers that we abstract all of the important things away and you specialize so deeply that knowledge could legit be lost, you know, when people move on or pass away or something. Linux has been around for for a long time, right? And System D is relatively new to Linux. It's been around for a, a, a long time, but it's probably still over a decade old. Yeah, right. But you got you, you've got new deployment strategies. You got very like container based things, which do operate on like Linux most of the time. You've got like Kubernetes, which is its own like platform in the sky, and <laughs> it's just like I I don't. There's no easy answer anymore. And I I always appreciate the depth posts like this. And when I was deploying my Elixir service for, for the first time, it was it was with system D. Mostly because I wanted to restart my server and I didn't want to remember to start all my apps <laughs> in it. So I just wrote system D uh, services to auto start it on system, you know, start. And that's it's pure laziness, but um Anyway, systemd, probably uh, the go-to system for Linux supervision. You would do yourself a favor to, to learn more about it, I think. Everyone would. Next up, if you've ever wondered how the page title is set in Phoenix Live View, well, Armand Valesco covers this in a little blog post. It also comes in video form where he talks about how this happens. And a TLDR here is that for every diff, Live View will check for the page title assign and put it into the document title. And so you might have wondered, or you might have expected that some custom live view.js hook might have existed and that the server would check for that assign and then, you know, do the the regular API that we're all used to, where you can like push an event or send data across the wire that way. But you know, this is essentially the same thing, but it's being done by the system, I guess, and it's bypassing that workflow we're used to. Yeah, I bet that's just like pre JS hooks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Pre JS hooks. That's true. It took me a minute to, to catch on to what you were saying there. It's like before hooks even existed, they were doing hooks. Yeah. But there was a day. <laughs> it's a painful day, but I remember that. Absolutely. And next up, there was a post by Sean Moriarty over on the Dockyard blog titled Three Years of NX Growing the Elixir Machine Learning Ecosystem. So in this post, Sean recounts the the last three years of history, and really, it it is like three years ago in October for when the NX project got started, and he talks about like what that actually looked like, his first attempts, and and then where it ended up going from there, and then he talks about what he sees in the next three years of machine learning in the Elixir space. And spoiler, he is bullish on the next three years and excited about the new things to come. 
definitely check that out if you're interested in machine learning in the Elixir space. And that's probably where a lot of the, the most stuff is happening right now that I've been seeing. So it's exciting stuff. All right, next up, conference world. Let's talk a little bit more about conferences. So in 2024, next this coming year, like merely weeks away at this point, <laughs> the FOSDEM conference will host its third edition of the Dev Room, which is completely dedicated to the Beam and all of the languages that are running on it. So the FOSDEM conference is being held in Brussels, Belgium, on the ULB campus on February 3rd in 2024. FOSDEM, if you haven't heard of it, is an annual conference about free and open source software. I think that's the FOS part of the DEM. Attended by over 5,000 developers and open source enthusiasts from all over the world. Brussels is a nice vacation spot, too. And you could stick yourself in a room with a bunch of other like-minded people. That always sounds fun. Speaking of conferences, there's quite a few Elixir Conf US videos being released. And by our count, I think there's probably still several more to come. I'm just going to apologize up front for butchering people's names here. <laughs> Rafal Studnicki keeping real-time auctions running during rollout. Sounds interesting. Got Tyler Young rebuilding the plane while it's still flying. Mikal Sleds rewrite peon in Elixir. We've got Andrew Barian ECSX, a new approach to game development in Elixir. Geoffrey Lessel introducing Vox, the static site generator for Elixir lovers. I went to Tyler's talk physically, rebuilding the plane while still flying. You can't really tell what that's about just by the title, but it's about data migrations and changing out stuff in the midst and how to have less downtime. Very good talk. Go check that one out. Keeping real-time auctions during rollout. That's a very nice like OTP problem. These are all pretty cool topics, but love to see all those Elixir Conf videos released. And last up, December is right around the corner. By the time this comes out, you've got like four days until the Advent of Code launches. So if you haven't ever done Advent of Code before, it's this tradition that's kind of been in the programming community where these little puzzles would be launched one per day starting in December as a countdown to the end of the year. They're fun little puzzles. They get increasingly more complex and difficult, and you can solve them using whatever programming language you choose. So the first puzzles will unlock on December 1st. And there was a new rule I saw this year. It says, don't use AI to get on the global leaderboard. <laughs> so, you know, using AI to help figure out, solve the problems. Yeah. <laughs> rather than trying to figure it out yourself. Bunch of cheaters. We did want to pass along something we saw from Leonardo Gago. Hopefully got his name right. But he created this little smart cell for Livebook that's called Kino AOC. So advent of code. This has looked pretty fun. Like if you want to work on Advent of Code in Livebook, this smart cell would be something presumably that would help you do that. So you can check out the GitHub repo where he shows how to do it and talks about that. But yeah, I know a lot of people will use this time to maybe play with a new language that they're wanting to learn about and kind of explore a new language trying to solve these puzzles. But Elixir is, you know, my favorite language. Have you guys ever done Advent of Code? I did like three days of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like you get like four or five days in and then it gets real serious real fast. Yeah, well, it could, all the problems, it's probably different. Uh, last time I did it, which was a while ago, it was like all regex stuff. I was like, man, yeah, I don't want to learn regex. <laughs> it's like, I know it pretty well, but that's not why I'm doing this. You know, I want to <laughs> learn the language like I'm writing in, not, not the regex language. <laughs> that is an interesting problem. 
when it's very regex focused. But then some of the problems they'll have like a, a part two where it takes, you know, more complicated next steps. So yeah, I, I'm like you guys, I've tried it before and it's like, it just gets harder and harder. And then you know how you have family things coming up and mm-hmm. activities, holiday activities, and it might kind of fall by the wayside, but uh, certainly fun to check out. That advent of code Kino Helper, though, is going to be like super nice, though. Ultimately, there's some boilerplate that you got to do for every single problem. Mm-hmm. And that that is going to take that stuff away. So much easier to dive into the actual problem. Mm. Yeah. yeah, you got to like go download that input every single time and like put it into a file and make a make a module. And like, so it's like it does that for you. And I, I was just looking at the code. And it's interesting because it's always going to be like slash year slash day slash input so he's just got got that all set up so now you don't have to do that boilerplate of getting the input and getting it into your module and that's it for the news elixir and phoenix are incredible they make it possible to quickly build highly resilient and reliable systems capable of operating at incredible scale fly.io is a great place to host elixir apps You can deploy your app to multiple regions around the world with a private network linking them all together so your app can cluster and globally do some incredible Phoenix magic. Give your users a more responsive UI while writing less code and moving the app closer to your users without needing an ops team. Check out fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today, we're going to talk just a little bit about some of the things that we've been seeing and paying attention to in the wider software industry. So this is nothing Elixir specific per se. If you're not interested in this and talking about AI and some of the things we're seeing, that's totally cool. We'll catch you next time. If you just want to hang around for the discussion, we'd love to have you. So it's our little fireside chat with juicy gossip. (laughs) So if you, dear listener, have been paying attention to me, I have been very bullish on AI, right? Just very excited about what it can do and how I can make my applications leverage that. And the, the leader by far is OpenAI with ChatGPT. Then lately, I've been seeing some things that have been making me rethink that particular relationship with that company. That's kind of what I was wanting to talk about. And I'd love to get your guys' thoughts and feedback too. But one of the things, just a little background. So Sam Altman was the CEO of OpenAI and he had a co-founder and they started it together. And one of the big things that it started with, OpenAI started as this open company. We want to create AGI, which is artificial general intelligence. And, you know, for the betterment of humanity is kind of what the mission was. And they created things like Whisper Model and made that open and open source, which is very cool. And then as they started getting into ChatGPT and it started actually getting more powerful, then they said, well, maybe we won't be open anymore. So there are some great open stuff they've done. And then when they said, oh, you know, we could actually make a lot of money on this. And uh, we don't know if we want to actually let other people know how to do this. Then it's not open anymore. The the open part of their open AI (laughs) (laughs) didn't really seem to fit anymore. Yeah. So what I've been thinking about is the risks that we may assume for ourselves if I'm building a product that has a major AI component. And if I'm building that on OpenAI as my provider, I view it as a a risk. Now, to be clear, I think if you're building a hobby project or a personal assistant tool kind of thing, like if you remember, I talked about creating an AI personal trainer, fitness trainer, and it's using ChatGPT. And that was one of the things that happened, actually, is 
back on November 8th, part of my morning routine was to ask my personal trainer what my workout is for the day. And it couldn't tell me because OpenAI was hard down. Like the API was down, ChatGPT was down for like two and a half hours. And I thought, huh, for me, it's just an inconvenience that it's not working. I'll, I got by, you know, yeah, I figured out my workout. That was fine. That's it. I'm not working out today. (laughs) (laughs) That's the only excuse I needed. But then I thought if I had actually built this as a service and I had thousands of customers, the AI aspect of that service is key and central. And if that goes down, I don't have a service. And that like kind of got me thinking like, huh, that's a, a high risk relationship for me. Now, I think there might be situations where people are maybe adding AI to an an app where loss of that AI service temporarily might be an inconvenience, but it's not going to like really impact the business, right? It'll, It'll be okay. It's like more on the fringe kind of helping ancillary services kind of stuff. It's not like core and central, but if it's like central to what you're building, then you might need to think about it. It's just adding another relationship or dependency on something that you don't have any control over. Complex systems, they're prone to complex failures. And the more interconnected components that we have, the more potential points of failure exist. So each independent piece introduces its own failure characteristics, like it's going to have a different way of failing, a different experience when it goes down. That often leads to like cascade effects where just the whole thing starts crashing. And it's really hard to predict and harder to control when you have these all these external dependencies like that. So then I started thinking like, huh, well, gosh, you know, what is the alternative? It's becoming more popular now. And I've been talking about it too. Like Mistral is an open source AI chat model. And it's not the only one. There's others. And I'm using Zephyr, which is a, a flavor of Mistral. But I think it's the open source options that like, if I want to build a service where AI is a major component, I need to be able to host that myself, to host that model myself. All these other things could happen, all these other changes that could happen to OpenAI where they change policies or or whatever, it doesn't break my business. Like if my business depends on this as part of my app, part of my service, then it's like, huh, I should probably be hosting this myself. I don't know, you guys have any any thoughts? There's, there are so many software services that we use that depend, we depend on, right? When they go down, then it sucks for everybody. Like U.S. East one, (laughs) (laughs) but the, the, you know, the same argument won't necessarily hold up there because it's just seemingly unreasonable, you know, to host your own hardware for your, your app, you know, for the internet to, to, to serve. Obviously infrastructure is, it's kind of a different ballpark than this open the AI and other AI kind of generative kind of stuff, different class of things. But we're mature enough now in this new industry that things are coming out that solely rely on it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a core business requirement for this to work. <laughs> and when you are essentially offshoring that into open AI, well, you carry all the risk that they have. And that's that becomes unacceptable at certain thresholds and so yeah like i mean just echoing what you said though like if you're adding ai in 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 an augmentative way that doesn't really matter to your business when that's just doesn't work hey go for it any any kind of service like that's going to be fine yeah when it's like the core business value that you you're bringing uh, 
probably want to reconsider your risks. Yeah. <laughs> Have a backup at least, you know? Infrastructure-wise, the dream is to be multi-cloud. No one ever does it, but multi-cloud is the <laughs> is the idea, right? That you have a redundancy when one goes down, you got the other one, bring it up, and you ex essentially experience no downtime. I don't know if there's a lot of those kinds of options right now in the AI world. It's just kind of like open AI or bust. I guess it's not really true because you have more to share. <laughs> is that right? You can either use open AI or closed AI. That's an <laughs> up and coming business that Microsoft is acquiring. <laughs> Yeah, just to kind of skim over that whole drama pile, but you're saying you're using Zephyr and Mistral, and there's there, they are there are open source libraries, and I, you know, we said it before, that's the power of open source. So I agree. So I created the Elixir Langchain library, and one of the goals that I have with this library is to basically be that abstraction behind the model, so I can just swap out which model I'm talking to. And it could be OpenAI's ChatGPT, and I could swap out to a self-hosted Mistral model without my application code having to change in any significant way, like trying to have that be a buffer. You know, that, that's a challenge. That's what I'm actively working on. So I haven't succeeded yet. It's uh, I'm, I'm in the early stages of getting it all to work with Mistral. Uh, but I think that's that's valuable to consider just so that we're not overly dependent on one provider. And I want to talk about a few of the risks that I see with OpenAI. So one, you know, it's the single provider risk. We talk about other options like Llama from Meta and Bard from Google, but Bard is not actually, as at the time of this recording, is not actually available as for API access. I could go use it through their web interface, and there's people who've hacked libraries to actually give an API to that web interface, but like, that's a hack. That's I'm not going to build my business on that. Right now, ChatGPT OpenAI is the leader in that area. But then the other thing is a policy change risk. So AI in politics, AI is being talked about a ton, right? And Sam Altman, ironically, the creator of OpenAI is one of those people who's, who's a major proponent for government regulation of the AI industry. And you think, well, why would he want that? And really that's a case of people who are or have an early lead seeing that there is no moat to protect them technologically, that open source models are catching up, that uh, the best defense is a legal defense, a legal moat. So if they can make it so there's all those regulations, then it becomes very difficult to become a new competitor. You're talking about that leaked Google paper from a while ago, I think. Yeah. 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 So it's kind of interesting that Altman has been like, hey, we need to have regulation. With regulation comes the idea that the government could say, we don't want you to have a model that can do this anymore, whatever that be may be. The risk there is that what I was doing was completely fine and legal. And then they might just say, you know, we don't want to be in, in that area. We don't want you to have a service that can do that kind of a thing anymore, whatever that may be, even though it was legal before. Now your business is dead. <laughs> it's like, that, that's just a huge risk. But if you're hosting the model yourself, you're protected from that. There's a financial risk because like, if you look at OpenAI, they're not public with their prices, their costs, their internal costs, but some of the employees, there's been a lot of stuff we'll talk about that in a minute, a lot of stuff coming out about some of the internal things from what's going on inside the company. But it's evident that AI chatbots lose money on every chat 
that you have with it, which means you're not paying the true cost. So if you're not paying the true cost and your business model is built on this being the costs that I have, maybe that will improve and, and it'll stay that way. We don't know. That's the whole thing. You don't know. But if I was actually charged the true cost plus the profit margin to keep the company profitable, that might destroy my business model. You know, if I'd known that that was the business model going into it and that would be my costs, then, oh, I might not have created that company in the first place. So it's like there's just this financial risk, right? Because it's not all open. We don't understand it all yet. But the big one right now is governance risk. And if you haven't been following it, it's a major ongoing drama. So we can't give the final answer to it. But the board of OpenAI fired the co-founder, Sam Altman, he was forced out of his own company by a coup from the board. And it wasn't even all members of the board were in an in agreement. And then some of them, after doing this, said, you know, I really feel ashamed that I was part of that. I don't want to, you know, we would like to have you back. And the president, his other co-founder, the president, Greg Brockman, he resigned. And then they took key colleagues with them. And then there's like a tweet from Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft says... We're extremely excited to share the news that Sam Altman and Greg Brockman, together with colleagues, will be joining Microsoft to lead a new advanced AI research team. Oops. <laughs> and then like 90% of the people in OpenAI, of the employees, said, if you don't bring Sam back, we're leaving. You know, the reason people acquire companies is either for their technology and patents, or it's for their people, or it's for their processes. Those are like the three reasons you acquire a company, like an aqua hire is to get the people. So Microsoft is a minority shareholder of OpenAI, but like one of the largest minority shareholder. <laughs> Somebody tweeted this. I was like, oh man, that's it right here. They said, uh, it's like, did did Microsoft just acquire a $8 billion company for free? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh no, you're, I think that's right. I, I mean, who knows how this will actually play out? We still we're still in the middle of it, but every day something new, some new bombshell piece of news comes out about it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it it looks that way today mm -hmm. that that folks are gonna just like the OpenAI folks are just gonna flock over to Microsoft because they all have like equivalent compensation, which is probably absurdly high, and <laughs> their company valuation isn't tanking currently, so their shares. Who knows? Who knows? But it looks that way right now from the outside. I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. I'm just glad that I am not financially tied to this at all. <laughs> so I, I <laughs> so I could just get the popcorn out without sweating bullets. <laughs> yep. And the reason I think it's interesting to me and that it's generally interesting to software developers is that AI has been talked about for a long time as like, this is a game changer. This is a significant advance that we need to at least figure out how we're going to grapple with it as a company. How are we going to leverage this? So I think it matters to us just because we're in the software development space. And what this made me think is even if they get this totally resolved and everything goes back to normal and they just maybe fire two board members and replace that so it's not a, a risk going forward, it still just highlights that if we depend on something that's critical to our business that we don't control and it's controlled by an external party, it's not like replaceable. It's not like fungible where I can say, I'm going to swap to a different provider. You know, if that's a hosting provider, you know, it might be inconvenient, but I can swap to a different hosting provider. Like that is not the key to my business. I think that's where it makes me think. 
And that's why I think self-hosted models and open source models are really important in the Elixir space. And that's where I think it does come back to Elixir. Only Python can do this otherwise, like running their own models, right? Like if I'm, if I got a Ruby app, I have to run Python on the back end to run any hosted models. If I'm running a PHP app, if I'm doing any Java app, I have to run Python. So that means I have different operations characteristics, a different team that knows how to manage and scale a Python app and keep it up and running, which is different. But like with Elixir, because of NX, because of Axon and Bumblebee, we have that as an option that other communities don't. That's why when I see this stuff, it's like, ooh, 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 we are better positioned to be able to run our own models than almost any other community other than Python. Open source rocks. It shields you from these kinds of like corporate drama events, right? Which are inherently people-oriented in a different way. Open source is is people-oriented in a, I view it as a positive way. It is open. There is little littler control financially nowadays that water seems to be muddying up but (laughs) i I think it's always going to be a good choice if you're truly interested in advancing humankind i think open source is is what we ought to do regulation wise it's open truth can be asserted just by the evidence of the code being out there for anyone to review it's not closed behind doors you know like There's plenty of examples of people just straight up lying about what happens, you know, inside a corporation about how something works. It's not, it's just not true. And with open source, you avoid that whole situation. And then, yes, of course, all all the Elixir things, there's like definite differentiators on how Elixir makes this work really well. And we don't have this in other ecosystems. We're in such a good position to make software better for people and easier on developers to implement as well without obfuscating how things work too much. That's the other part of this too. I think that's pretty important is that we don't always hide away the complex parts because you do need to understand the complex parts sometimes to get what you're, what you're looking for. But we also have tools that do make it easy to just get stuff done. Yeah. I'm very much looking forward to like how Elixir and AI kind of stand after all of this open AI shenanigans is, is, is settled. Open source really is kind of what it's about, right? Like everyone that I know is running Linux on their servers. Yes, there are companies that are running Windows for their servers. Weirdos. Wait, you guys don't deploy your Elixir apps on Microsoft server? <laughs> <laughs> it's that fundamental open source building block becomes really important. And I think having the ability to do that with AI things is important. I think having the ability with the Langchain type API, I want to be able to shield my application from changes to which model I'm using, because I think that's important. But I I do think that Elixir is super well positioned. We'll have to get Jose on again. When we talked about his vision for why he wanted to do machine learning at all, like go through the major effort, building all this infrastructure, NX, this def N functionality built directly into Elixir. You know, that's a major undertaking. He didn't envision this where we are today, I don't think, but he thought it was important and he wanted to be there. And there was advantage that Python had that no other community really has. And he at least wanted to, you know, if not lead, but follow and be able to follow on not too far behind, which I think is really cool. 
it's just got me thinking. I've been thinking a lot about this. The quote I've heard, and I've used it a few times, is it's not necessarily that AI is going to take people's jobs, but people using AI will take people's jobs who are not using AI is kind of what I see is the the real employment risk there. So I think there's a reason why it is important for us to consider what can my application do with AI? How can this help me solve problems faster, more cheaply, whatever? So I think it's important. But then I, I, you know, I was a super big fan of ChatGPT and now with all the drama and all the questions about it, it's like, huh, we do have this out. Elixir having all these escape hatches, Phoenix having all these escape hatches, like, hey, we may have the AI escape hatch (laughs) being able to run our own models. Well, that's just something we'll be having to watch and see. You know, I'm sure by the time you hear this, maybe the whole open AI question has been resolved, but still it raised the questions for me about how I want to build any company and what I depend on. I'm looking forward to a service that launches based like out of a reaction of this, like that's operationalizing open source models. That's what I predict is going to happen out of this. And I'll, and I'll look forward to it because that's like, that's the problem that people need to, to solve, right? Without like covering how AI works, it's just getting all the tedious stuff out of the way. We'll see. Yeah. But I will also say we are coming into holiday season. So as a little wrap up, hope everyone has a great holiday coming up. We haven't actually figured out if we're going to be taking breaks ourselves. You know, may, we might not have an episode every week during the holidays. So we'll let you know. You can follow us on Twitter to make sure you stay in tune. But unfortunately, that's all we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.